You're listening to the Lament Configuration Podcast, a podcast where we talk about shit that makes us sad. I'm Julia Gruffer. I'm a graphic novelist, and with me is my co-host, Gretchen Falker-Martin, horror author and film critic. Tonight, we're going to be taking listener questions and seeing where the wind takes us. We're just vibing. Yeah. All right. Do you want to just jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, great. Here we go. This one comes from Black Philippa. You can pick one of your works to be adapted into a format other than the one it's currently in by anyone you like. Which work is it? What form would you like to see it adapted to? Who do you think would be the best person to do the job? Hmm. That's a good one. I feel like probably film, right? But I don't think I know enough about filmmakers to say who should make the film. Also, several years ago, there was a kind of a comics festival in Portland called The Projects, where we did a lot of multidisciplinary comics presentations. And one of the things that we did was, I guess it was like a play of Black is the Color, which is my graphic novel about mermaids being mean to drowning sailors. We used music from the album Ocean Songs by Dirty Three. And a friend of mine who was a local choreographer helped us to set it up. And I and a few of my friends performed it. And that was really cool. I don't know if the story could sustain an entire play, but I think it would make a nice like modern dance piece or something like that. Yeah, that'd be really cool. It's With such music by Dirty cool Three, story. please. Yeah, <laughs> what a great choice. That's like the music that I think of when I read that book. That's so mm. cool. Partly I know because there's a, a mermaid on the cover, but right. still, it's just like, it's such complex music that is not, super interested in being totally satisfying to listen to. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that my approach to comics and storytelling is very post-rock influenced. Yeah. The way that it, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of narrative structure as like a traditional song or story. It's just kind of like riffing has, I don't know, more of a jazz, like free form approach. Being as um, one of our times preeminent Julie Graffer fans. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would just just love to see Lars von Trier's Laid Waste. Oh, fuck yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. I feel like Lars could really get in there with the issues of like Agnes being like this default caregiver that is like dying from that role and nobody knows it but her. (laughs) That's a very like breaking the waves kind of a story. Yes. On my end, I would really... I mean, you'd have to dig Ken Russell up for me to really get what I wanted. But I would love to see someone adapt Ego Hominy Lupus. Anyone who's kind of like disgusting and maximalist, you know, I think it would be really cool to see what David Cronenberg did with it. Or like Paul Verhoeven. I would also be interested in seeing Jennifer Kent's take on it. She did The Babadook and The Nightingale. And I think she's less like extreme and sort of splattercore than I am but does have a really good sense for women in extremity, which is what all my books are about. Yeah. That's that shit we like. Yeah. I just, when, when I see a little fictional woman or I make her up, I want her to have a bad time right away. Yes. All right. Moving on. This question comes from inanimate carbon Ron. Hmm. Thank you. Inanimate carbon Ron. I saw the Mitchells versus the machines today. It was bad. Do you see any value in watching stuff that sucks? What What is the Mitchells versus the machines? 
from what I've gathered from social media, it is an animated food movie, um, presumably about the titular Mitchells engaged in some kind of competition with, with their machine counterparts. Ah, okay. I'm going to say that the Mitchells versus the machines is about suburban family. It's going to be like really leave it to beaver kind of vibe. Cause they love that. The CG movies, they love that stuff. And then they're going to get replaced with some androids that are identical to them in every way. And then they're, so they're better at being the Mitchells than the Mitchells are. And then they, they have to try and get their life back, even though actually everybody who knows them prefers the robots. And in the end, in fact, their friends and family come together to kill them. Yeah. Bury them in a pit. And they all agree silently never to bring it up again. And they carry on to have a really happy life with the androids. Yeah. So I don't know why you didn't like it. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, that honestly. sounds like a, a great Carbon movie run. just scripted and which will be getting picked up by Netflix sometime in the next two hours. I thought it was really powerful. I thought that the scene where the human father kicked the robot dog and it broke was really disturbing. Said anything you could need to say about the relationship between men and robot dogs. Yeah, between Mitchells and machines. Yeah, but actually, I do think that there is some value in watching shit that sucks. Not like all the time, or, you know, ironically or whatever. But as a critic, it's very valuable to me. And it really stretches my brain to sit down and try to write at length about something that I don't give a shit about or actively hated. It's mm. actually much harder to write about something that I just don't care about than it is to write about something I despise. I definitely think it's motivating to take in work that you don't like. When I was younger, I'm sure that I've talked about this a million times on the podcast. I used to always make a point of going to the first Thursdays or first Friday or whatever depending on the city that I was living in, the like art walk when all the galleries would have an opening on the same night and just seeing as much of what was going up as I could. And I only ever liked about maybe 5% of it. I, w I would spend a couple hours there and see maybe one show that I thought was worthwhile. And even that was like, I always felt like it was really worthwhile to go because I always came away with this fire of like, oh, well, if this is the kind of work that they're showing in galleries, like, what am I afraid of? Like, I can do so much better than this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and with a refined sense of what I felt was worthwhile in art and what wasn't. So in that sense, I think it's a good idea to expose yourself to things that you don't like. But I question the use of the word bad here, because I think that a lot of things that art that we are quick to call bad we could probably find a better, more specific term for that. Um, what I usually say is purposefully mediocre or unambitious. But is that what carbon Ron means? Well, I don't know, as I have only seen the version of the Mitchells versus the machines that we just created. Mm -hmm. Which is perfect. Yes. But you know, like a lot of times when people talk about bad movies, what are they talking about? Like, I don't know, Mac and me or something like Mac and me is pretty terrible. It's pretty hard to watch in some ways. It is really entertaining. You can really have an experience watching it. I think it's well made in many ways. As Mystery Science Theater 3000 proves a bad thing is a wonderful resource, basically endlessly exploitable. True. But 
even if you're not actively making fun of it, like it can be pretty entertaining. Or are we talking about just something that is poorly made, incompetently made? People love that. What's the fucking guy who made like the room? Oh, yeah. Tommy Wiseau. Does he do that on purpose? I think that's a matter of some debate, but where I land on it is no, but he would like us to think that he does. Mm, I see. I think I'm not mad. I'm actually laughing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, he became known as this guy who made the worst movie in recent memory, just in terms of like actual ability to adhere to conventions of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And once he realized that, that was like his in to some kind of fame and influence. So he's, he's rolled into it. People kept telling me, oh, you have to see it. It's so bad, which is not a convincing argument to me. Yeah, maybe not the selling point they think it is. No. I mean, like, there are things about The Room that are interesting to watch just because it's sort of like watching a robot explain what a human's day is like to you. Hmm. And the robot is, like, broken and badly programmed. so there's things like the main character walking into a flower shop and he has this completely breathless insane way over edited conversation with the shop owner the florist during which he like compliments her dog and asks her a question and says goodbye to the dog in the space of maybe two and a half seconds huh so it's very like it's interesting but i think the culture that has grown up around it is kind of boring. (laughs) Like, of course, this thing is bad and you laugh at it. That's yes. When people talk about him and his work, it just sounds like conversations about outsider art to me. Yeah. You know, when people are like, oh, this person is so ignorant of how to make a proper film. Yes, that's exactly it. I mean, it's it's like picking up. And it's like we're laughing with him, but not really. Not really. It's like picking up the Henry Darger's book about the yep. child crusades against the aliens and saying, look at this fucking freak. He can't even write a book under 14,000 pages. <laughs> You're missing yeah. the point. Someone is, is giving you something that you will not encounter anywhere else. And I think so, that has a lot of value on its own. So for that definition of bad, I think that's a cultural misnomer and that there is a lot of value in watching those things. Yeah, it's worthwhile to have a mind that is open to types of art and storytelling that you are unaccustomed to. Now, on the other hand, if a movie, let's say, if I know that I am not gonna get anything out of it, like I'm, I haven't seen any superhero movies, probably at all, I think. I haven't seen any of the new Star Wars films. The last one that I saw was the Revenge of the Sith. If memory serves, you did see Iron Man with Robert Downey Jr. I did see the first Iron Man movie. Yeah. And I saw some of the old X-Men movies, but I haven't kept up with the Avengers or whatever. And I just, I think that it they would bore me and I just have no interest in them. I don't know whether they're bad by some measures. They're probably really bad. It cost a lot of money to make them. Probably a lot of people at the top of their respective professions contributed to them. I don't think I would like it. And I'm not going to sit through it just for the opportunity to figure out whether or not I can get anything out of it. Yeah. That's a, that's that, a waste of my, I have a limited amount of time on earth and I have a great big brain that <laughs> I could put absolutely anything into. So like, why, why waste my time with that? Yeah. That's precisely what I was thinking of when I mentioned purposefully mediocre art 
which is yeah. something that I think is kind of anathema to how I want to spend my life. I've I would I would much rather see something that is extremely weird and offensive and bad. Yes. Absolutely. For trying too hard rather than something that's just kind of drearily mediocre. Give me a freak's failure over a suit's success any day. Hell yeah. So yeah, in short, the answer varies. <laughs> oh, but you know, it can also be, you can see a stupid movie with friends and like have a communal experience around that. If all your friends are really into Star Wars, like go see a Star Wars film with them. That's true. You know, I have several close friends who really like superheroes and I did go to one of the one of the DC movies with them. And we had a really lovely time just because they were really enthusiastic and I love them and it was nice to be there with them. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes really the quality of the art is not necessarily the point, just like right. the communal experience of enjoying art together is the point. Right. Sitting down to, you know, unremarkable food together is still sometimes what you need rather than sitting down to something delicious alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are so many roles that art can occupy in your life. So in conclusion, I am cautious about labeling any particular work of art bad because I think that that is, it's so nonspecific and a lot of things that could be called bad are actually good. <laughs> They're both good and bad. I know it's confusing, but that's what you get when you have these big abstract words. They can mean pretty much anything. Things that are bad have their place. You can yes. probably find a way to enjoy them in your life. And if not, it's okay to not bother. Yes, it is. And as much as part of me would really like everyone to stop watching bland movies that are made according to some sort of production schedule set out by the Walt Disney Corporation, that's not really what being a critic is about. And I think for me, when I'm able to focus on sharing things that I love with other people and sharing my insights into art, and especially when I hear back from other people who have found art because of my work and who have their own relationships to it after that. That's very special and meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. I don't remember where I was going with this. I hate bland art, I guess. But <laughs> also not that it's not that important. It doesn't have to really impinge on my relationship to art at all if I just ignore it. And not everybody wants to have the kind of relationship with art that we do. Right. And that's fine, because if the world were full of people like us, it would be exhausting. Pandemonium. Oh my and, god. And probably both chaotic and boring. Even more so than the world as it is now, which is pretty chaotic and boring. Not everybody is in pursuit of extreme experiences all the time. That's very true. Not everybody wants to go to the theater and just like get turned inside out. Right. There's no uh, line around the block for the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. There might be. Depends yeah. on the neighborhood. But those people, people that don't want to watch the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover, those people deserve art too. They deserve art that meets their needs. Yes, I agree. So let those people have their terrible art and just, that's all. Well, I think that's a good sentiment. <laughs> Shall we move on to the next question? Trying so hard not to be judgmental. I know you are, honey. Hmm. I really do. I really do think people deserve their schlock. Everybody has to turn their brain off sometimes. I agree with you. I think it's so easy for me to get caught up in watching someone who perhaps does not have a lot of art literacy 
enthuse about something and in my head i'm thinking like oh my god you would love art that is not poured into a trough like (laughs) you're thinking oh you could do so much better right you know like it seems to me like someone voluntarily hiding their light under a bushel like that enjoyment that enthusiasm you could be getting so much more out of that relationship and Mm -hmm. that makes me frustrated which is not a terribly productive emotion in that situation you know what does it really matter to me if someone looks at Zack Schneider's Justice League and thinks like wow this is so beautiful this movie is gorgeous it's probably the best looking movie ever made like yes (laughs) they are wrong no it doesn't actually matter it hurts to see people be wrong oh it does it does but I think that it adds to the sum total of beauty and humanity in the world when people see things that they enjoy and things that they find beautiful, even if those things are stupid to me. Yeah. As much as I would like to cynically say that part of my issue here is that people are often moved and transported and emotionally hyper-invested in things that are effectively Air Force propaganda. Yeah. Or like an ad for friendly fascism. A lot of great art is made in service of selling war to people. That is very true. Everybody just out there singing of arms and the man. Good Lord. Well, there you go. I hope you're happy in Animate Carbon Ron. (laughs) All right, moving on. This comes from Sob Goblin. That's a very good screen name. Yeah, I like it. Hello, Gretchen and Julia. Thanks for being generous enough to share a bit of your opinionated, gloriously bitchy selves with us. Mm. My question... What is your favorite classic greasy spoon diner meal, breakfast or otherwise? Onion oh. rings. Oh man, a good onion ring. What a what Love a fun onion thing. rings. That's to me, pretty much anywhere I go, I'll get onion rings. To me, there is no greater diner experience than a piece of pie and a cup of coffee. Oh yeah, what kind of pie though? Well, I'll try most anything at least once, but I love key lime. I love mm-hmm. cherry pumpkin i'm not typically super keen on apple but i don't dislike it either and when it's done really well of course that is apparent in the taste (laughs) big fan of chocolate cream banana cream i really like pie (laughs) (laughs) i like lemon meringue Mm. i got when i was in florida a couple of years ago they took me to like the oldest diner in florida or something and i got fried green tomatoes and key lime pie that was fantastic oh i remember you telling me about that i was so jealous it was a really good diner meal i don't really eat meat anymore but fried clams really good that's not exactly a diner meal it's more of like a i don't know where do you get fried clams like a roadside stand yeah like a i I feel like a a fish shack or like a seafood shack is in the spirit of the greasy spoon it is. Fried clams, very good. Or, or a lobster roll is also fantastic. There's also my favorite diner on this bitch of an earth is Annie's in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I used to go all the time hmm. um, when I lived there. And my favorite thing to get there was an everything bagel with tater tots and a couple eggs. Hmm. And I would sit there and just feel like restored to humanity as i (laughs) ate god i love diner coffee 
Yeah. I miss diners so much. Yeah, me too. Oh, I can't wait to go back to a diner. People were talking in the Discord today about how you used to be able to smoke in restaurants and how every time you went to a restaurant, they would ask you smoking or non-smoking. Oh, it's so civilized. Mm. And when I was a teenager, I used to go with my friends to the Friendlies up on the Heights, like all the time. And we would just sit and nurse cheap cups of coffee and smoke for like hours. Which, first of all, we were like 16, 17 years old. Nobody said boo to us about it because nobody gives a shit. It didn't used to be a big deal. And the coffee was probably really bad. And maybe sometimes we got some French fries. And this is, you know, like the bad art that you see with your friends. You know, the food was not the point. Like spending hours at Friendly's with my friends was the point. Right. And I miss that. I mean, I don't miss being 17, but. Oh, good God, no. <laughs> But that was nice to be able to do, to just loiter in a place. Yeah. I think I was I was much more on my own as a teenager, but there's a bakery in downtown Concord, bread and chocolate, where I used to go and I'd get an eclair or a tiramisu and I'd go outside mm. with that and a cup of coffee and I'd smoke. God, when I used to work at, I worked at McGowan Fine Art right around the corner from there oh, when yeah, I was yeah, in yeah. high school. <laughs> and I used to go there and get like a chicken salad sandwich. It's really good. Mm. Or the yeah, they are uh, they are the eponymous so bread and chocolate, just yeah, terrifyingly. Well, can't have everything. That's very true. Their bread and chocolate is really good, though. It is. Anyway, I really miss diners. Yes, and I really want pie now. Mm. Oh yeah, I Gretchen makes a terrific key lime pie, by the way. Oh, thank you, Julia. You're very welcome. I I pity the users who, or the listeners who are not able to uh, try it for themselves. You know who makes a really good pumpkin pie is you. Oh, thank you. I like all your desserts. Thanks. I suffer from that Virgo quality of like trying to put like bran husks in every kind of a thing that should just be for fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. how can we make this worse? That's very, very true. But I also, I don't like things that are too sweet. So... I'll like have the sugar and make it with whole wheat flour and basically ruin it. <laughs> well, you've never ruined anything that never. I've subsequently eaten. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, moving on from the sad ghost of diners. <sighs> What's next? This comes from Tom. Hi, Tom. Where do you like to do work? Is there any piece of yours you feel differently about because of where you made it? Mm. I have a desk set up in the bedroom that I share with my partner and it has all my supplies and, you know, copies of all my books for when they need to get mailed to people and all of the originals of all of my important work. It's all arrayed around me. It's really messy. It's kind of depressing to be here, but this is where I make most things. It's not necessarily my favorite place to work. It's just the place where I work. Yeah. When I lived in Portland, we used to go to the cafe at Powell's Books or or other cafes sometimes and just meet up with friends and all of us draw together for a few hours. And that was always really nice. The nice thing about comics, at least the kind of comics that we were doing then, the kind of comics that I still do is that they are small enough to be portable that, you know, they're on like eight and a half by 11s and you can draw them on a cafe table that you're sharing with a bunch of other people. That sounds really nice. It is nice. I really enjoy drawing with other people who are also drawing and you can just kind of chat or not. 
and check in with other people about like, oh, does this look right? Because drawing can sometimes be a very lonely job. Yeah. And having other people doing it next to you doesn't necessarily disturb you and can actually be, you know, it's like supportive to have somebody else doing it with you so that you don't just wander off and do something more interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I've I feel very similarly about writing. I have a a hard time working in noisy conditions, but if I'm with another quiet person, I really enjoy the support of just another body and the sort of feeling of being on a team when -hmm. you know that you're doing the same thing as the other person. Gretchen likes to write lying in bed with her foot right next to her ear. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. I'm at this very moment pretzled up. She's literally a pretzel woman. It's really funny to see. Yeah. I don't know how she does it. I typically write in bed because my apartment is really small and I don't really have room for a desk. Also, I'm moving in like six to eight months. So why bother getting new stuff? Sometimes I'll work out in the living room on the little table by our back window, which overlooks the scenic parking lot. Do you have local McCarthy boys? Do you have yahoos who hang out in your parking lot? We do not. Our parking lot is specific to our little building, but we do have like the most incredibly straight neighbors imaginable. Oh. And they're constantly having a little like lawn hangout where they talk about their cars and what's going on at the local fire station. Wow. Yeah, it's it's surreal. This morning, outside of our bedroom window, well, outside of all of the windows of our apartment, which all face a large parking lot that's in the center of the block, for a couple of hours, there was just so many men playing bagpipes. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so loud. I saw Cassie tweeting about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that they're affiliated with the local fire department is what it is. But there's these bagpipe men, they play at funerals often in the neighborhood. And there's, we live in between several churches, like at at least five. And like, it was so loud that Frank couldn't hear his like online school. (laughs) And it was hot out. So we had had the windows open. And it, it, I just, I have never felt so oppressed by bagpipes in my life. (laughs) There were so many Gretchen, there was there literally were 20 people playing bagpipes. That's too many. It's really, I mean, At first, there was just one, and I thought that was too many. And then just more and more, like a horrible nightmare, just a proliferation of droning. God, that sounds so awful. Isn't that weird? It's not like like the McCarthy boys are quiet on their own. Like, I've been woken up by them when I've been staying with you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I love living in a place that has character and that is really unique to the neighborhood that I live in, that there's just constantly bagpipes and church bells. Because everybody is very Catholic here also. Like, yes. really, really Catholic. Yes. Almost every lawn has some kind of a, a Mary or, or St. Francis or St. Anthony. A lot of little gods. Sometimes statues. Joseph. Yeah, lots of little gods. I've written in a lot of places over the years because I've moved around so much. I haven't lived anywhere for longer than two years since graduating college. Oof, that's so rough. Yeah, I don't love it. I would really like for the next place that I live to be at least semi-permanent. And I definitely do feel differently about some of my work because of where I wrote it. When I wrote No End Will Be Found and Ego Hominy Lupus, I was living with a really, really abusive partner who made me 
just incredibly miserable and sick. And often when I think about those books, I think about what it was like to live with them and that kind of sad, dilapidated apartment that we had together. I kind of liked that apartment, but I didn't have to live in it. Yeah, I mean, it was cute enough, but it was just sort of like poisoned. Mm-hmm. And also we had those horrible downstairs neighbors who wanted to kill me. Right. So, But yeah, you got Lenny. I did get Lenny. Uh, Lenny is my little cat who's asleep in my arms right now. Mm-hmm. And he belonged to our first floor neighbors in a three-story building. And one day showed up at my door on the third story and meowed to be let in. And when I did let him in, he got up into my arms and just purred up a storm. He chose you. He did. And I told them when I brought him back that I would be happy to take him since I knew that they had kind of a chaotic household and the mother of the family was like, oh my God, please. And I don't (laughs) know why, because he's the best cat I've ever met. He's a really good cat. I mean, he's, he's kind of a shithead, but he's so snuggly and sweet. He loves you. Yeah. He's a little mama's boy. Yes. So, yeah, I think that where I have worked on different projects certainly informs how I feel about them. I wrote a lot of Manhunt, which is going to be my first mainstream published novel, while I was temporarily living with my parents during the start of the pandemic. So I, I had gone back when lockdown started to help them out and just sort of be around while we couldn't be around anyone else. And that was such a weird experience because Manhunt is about a fucking plague that ends society. (laughs) (laughs) Reality scooped me. I had the idea first. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, that was actually really nice because I got to work in a room over our barn at a little desk, just looking out over the field. It was actually, that was the room that you, me and Hazel slept in that last night when you came and visited. Mm -hmm. And it was just really peaceful and full of sunlight that's a good writing room huh i got a lot of writing done there yeah like the two we only spent i think one or two nights in that room and i wrote like three thousand words yeah it's just so calm i remember that you and hazel took a nap and then you woke up and i was like guys guess what (laughs) that's right and you 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 read something to us oh right your your mini fictions for his dark materials those were so good yeah. Oh, that's right. When we first, that was, you guys were playing uh, Magic. <laughs> right. That was nice. That whole visit was very nice. Yeah, it was. I remember I dropped Frank off at my mom's, and then by the time that we were heading to your place, it was dark outside. And <laughs> so, like, Hazel and I are driving through, like, the woods in New Hampshire that is, it's not really that far outside of town, but because it was nighttime, it felt very spooky. Uh, and we're listening to, like, Space Oddity. and. <laughs> That was just lovely. It was really fun. Yeah, it is pretty out there, whatever else there is to say about it. If you want to get some writing done, go stay above Gretchen's parents' barn. Yeah, go live there. Yeah, you get to hang out with Sophie. Oh, that's true. Sophie is my mother's tiny little dog. She's so cute. Yeah, she's very cute. She Um, looks and smells and acts exactly like a little loaf of bread. She always reminds me of uh, Fizzgig from The Dark Crystal, that hairy little ball with a giant mouth. Man, I love the Dark Crystal. I love puppetry. Such cool shit. When you do the voice for Sophie, it's like a smuggler. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like a nebulously Iberian little criminal. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a criminal, which is funny because just... she has that paranoid look that is common to all <laughs> tiny dogs. Right. <laughs> sort of glassy little darting eyes. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Anyway, we got more questions. Let's do it. Yay. Go to the next one. All right. Let's clear these out and start fresh for next week. Beautiful. We got two more. All right. This comes from Pink Turns Puke. Hmm. Is there a work or performance by an artist or performer that single-handedly made you do a complete 180 of your perception of them, whether positively or negatively? The one that leaps to mind immediately is when Darren Aronofsky released The Fountain, and I was like, oh, this guy (laughs) actually can create a movie that I think is really cool and fantastic even. But it did not change my opinion of him one iota. I hate him. I always will. Mm. He's a despicable human being. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Anyway, coming out of the gate strong here. The I'll fountain say. rules. Fuck really <laughs> I got into the fountain because like one time I was at a tea shop in Portland drawing or something. And I was like, what, what is this music that we're listening to? And it was the soundtrack from the fountain. I was like, this fucking rules. Yeah, so I listened good. to it pretty much constantly for like a few months while I was writing and drawing flesh and bone. And this was like, I don't remember if this happened before or after Frank was born, but I waited until I had finished my book to actually see the film because I had developed this whole relationship with the soundtrack and I I didn't want the film to interfere with it until I had finished with the book. But I really loved the film. And then, yeah, I think I saw Requiem for a Dream and and, uh, Black Swan after that. And I was like, "Eh, I don't know. Yeah. But we're we're very strong advocates for The Fountain here. Why is The Fountain so good and those other films are not? I mean, I think the soundtrack is part of it. Clint Mansell did that. And it's just sort of this beautiful, like almost Philip Glass-esque classical soundtrack. He did the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack too, though, I think. He did indeed. And, you know, I, I think that his work for Requiem for a Dream, as much as I hate the movie, is pretty iconic. That song, the titular Requiem for the Dream, fucking, that was everywhere for years. They used it in a fucking Lord of the Rings trailer. Hmm. Yeah, he's a great composer. I think, honestly, that Aronofsky is just so much more interesting when he's indulging in fantasy. Hmm than when he's trying to say something about society, which is something that he seems to barely understand on his best day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, The Fountain is almost entirely like dream world nonsense. Right. It's very it's surreal. Really, it's it's just sort of this weird little fable about mortality. Yeah, it's just like one notch more respectable than what dreams may come. Yes. That is Do you remember that movie? I do, with Robin Williams. I really liked it as a kid. Yeah, me too. I haven't seen it since it came out. I remember all the cool effects they did with like paint and clay. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I just it was kind of psychedelic and like sad and romantic. I don't know. I when it came out I was probably like a teenager and very deeply in love with somebody and like, you know, really, really moved by it, I think. Which is good. I mean, I think it was probably kind of a stupid movie. I think Robin Williams in a serious role like that is always a little uncomfortable for me. But it's wonderful to be a teenager and to be moved by schlocky things. Yeah, it's a really powerful experience. Your emotions are such a fucking hormone stew. (laughs) The weirdest things can hit really strong. I'm trying to think of other authors who... I've I've reevaluated or or you know filmmakers or whatever nothing is really coming to mind no good movie ever made me retroactively like someone's bad movies mm. you know okay i'm going to say that that VMA performance of Vogue by Madonna 
Oh, I think it's from like 1992. And like before I saw that, I didn't really have any strong feelings about Madonna either way. Like she was a little bit before my time in the sense that like by the time that I was getting into popular music, she was like an established performer that didn't super interest me. Like she was really mainstream and whatever. But it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe like five years ago or something that I happened to watch this live performance. I want to say VMAs 1991, 1992, something like that. And they perform Vogue she and her troop of dancers that were on tour with her at that time in this whole like dangerous liaisons aesthetic. They've got these elaborate costumes and the dress that she wears is actually a dress that Glenn Close wore in dangerous liaisons, which is really cool. And I mean, I could probably talk about this performance for a long time. It really was so moving to me and made me think about the song and the nature of performance, because that's really that's really what it's about, is about, you know, Vogue is a dance that originates in New York drag balls. That is the idea is that you kind of strike different poses as if you were a model posing for a magazine cover. Right. Um and like drag performances, it is dealing with this kind of complex language of who are you when people are looking at you? You know, like you create a persona which is designed to be looked at, to be perceived in a certain way. It's not necessarily inherent to who you are, but the person that you, the way that you choose to be perceived is a facet of your identity that you're acting out in this scenario. And in order for it to work, there has to be the viewer. There has to be the gaze, which is being provided by us in this case. And it's integrated with this idea of like, you know, these extremely formal, like they've got like all these layers of clothing and that, you know, Vogue is a very stiff looking style of dance. And in the same sense, these kind of costumes that they're wearing and, and the very strict social environment that they represent become very erotic because you're following all these tight, tight rules and the just little gaps in between where you can express yourself become so, so poignant and so exciting. There's a moment during the performance where there's Madonna and two other women dancers, and I think six men, and the women have fans, and they throw the fans in the air so that they flip and then they catch them. And it's like, (sighs) I just get so wrapped up in it. It's like heart stopping. Like, oh my God, are they going to catch the fans? And then like, you know, you can read interviews with the performers later where they're like, yeah, nobody was sure if we were going to be able to catch the fans or not. And you can see in the performance, like everybody kind of claps and smiles when they catch them, which might just be because that's what they're choreographed to do. But one of the dancers has said in an interview that like, they did that spontaneously because they were like, oh, thank God they did it. Yeah. I, If I recall correctly, they had not once managed to do the yeah. whole thing perfectly before the actual performance. Mm-hmm. And the men who choreographed that dance were very famous drag ball performers. Hell yeah. And and they appear in the their their dancers in the performance as well. There's a documentary about that group of dancers where they reunite that is really moving. That's really cool. Yeah. I would tell you what the name of it is, but I forget. But it used to be on Netflix and I I think I watched that and Paris is Burning in the same weekend and just wept about drag. <laughs> Mm. and what a beautiful art form it is Back is a gorgeous art form it's yes but so i went from like not really caring very much about madonna to like feeling that she is a really important artist and also that like 
this performance in particular, you know, like she obviously isn't a drag performer and doesn't deserve credit for the creation of this art form, but I was able to appreciate it on a new level because of her and my feelings about her as an artist really deepened. Yeah. That's really cool. Man, I feel like in so many ways, drag is one of the definitive art forms of the past half century. Mm -hmm. In the same way that that, like rap and hip hop are culturally definitive. Yeah, like in the sense that mainstream culture is is constantly borrowing from it and pretending they're not. (laughs) Right. Just like, well, if a, a black person figures out something cool, we will just steal it and pretend we came up with it. Yeah, because they probably did it by accident. Yes. They just um, did it because they don't know any better, but we're doing it on purpose. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I've I've had sort of a long and complex relationship to drag personally. When mm-hmm. I first came out, I was really sensitive about it and I had a hard time dealing with the idea of of drag queens or being around drag queens. And I do think that you know drag queens are kind of as, as likely as anyone to be trans misogynist and unpleasant personally, but mm-hmm. I don't really care so much anymore about hard lines around gender and presentation and sexuality. And I've developed a real appreciation for drag and an understanding that that's part of my history kind of inseparably. Mm -hmm. Like many of the people that in history that we call trans women now called themselves drag queens. Yeah. And made parts of their living that way. Anyway, just something I think about a lot. No, you don't have to anyway. It's interesting. It's important. Yeah. Especially uh, at this time that we we're talking about pride so much. Jesus Christ. What a stupid fucking discussion. I'll, I'll tell you what. I've reached a point where when I see someone think of the childrening or mm. whatever, it just makes me want to pull my hair out. I mean, it's indistinguishable from fucking Phyllis Schlafly's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... I'm trying to train myself to understand that people who say this kind of shit are like either psyops or morons. <laughs> yes, I think that is that is largely the case. And I, like, I do not believe that real people with brains are having an objection to. I'm not even going to say kink at pride because what does that mean? Like, people it wearing wedding mean- rings is a kink, right? What they mean when they say kink at pride is seeing gay people and knowing they're gay being sexual god forbid and i think like you know it's it's comforting to say well they're brainless fucking morons but these are dominant cultural positions that are reasserting themselves in the pushback against trans visibility in the last 20 years you know absolutely the gay rights movement experienced what was for the dominant culture a very effective splitting around the issues of gay marriage Mm-hmm. where you have on the one hand the assimilationist gays who want an in to the hegemony who want to be able to have a 401k and go to the country club and whatever mm-hmm. and then on the other hand you have the revolutionary queers the militant queers people who've accepted that they're never going to belong to decent society right the magnetos as opposed to the- <laughs> <laughs> yes Fuck yes. Um, yeah, there's that famous panel from some comic I've never read that just says Magneto was right. And I think about that a lot. Yeah, I don't think I know enough about X-Men to wholeheartedly sign off on whether or not Magneto was right. But the little that I know about X-Men, I feel like he probably was right. Yeah, I, I don't know. Do I read a, I read a fanfic today where he had sex with a train. That's great. Good for him. I know it was terrific. So I'm inclined to side with Magneto and all things. 
There's that another famous wonderful panel little train fucker. He monologues about making the naked president of the United States lick his boots. What? Really? Yeah. In yeah. A comic? Yes. Woo. Yeah. <gasps> it rips. That's kinky. Just like seeing a Holocaust survivor get to do that to the president of the United States of America. That mm. whips. That's extremely good. Good for him. Yeah. Where was I going with this? Oh, right. So anyway, you have this this cultural divide in gay America around people who want to assimilate and people who either can't or don't or both. Mm-hmm. And there's the trans community is going through the same thing. And it's it's literally the same thing. It's copy pasted. Yeah. And it's so fucking infuriating to watch happen in real time when you know the history. Yeah, that's, I mean, I guess I don't have anything to say except that the fuck anyone who isn't comfortable watching gay people assert that we have a sexuality. But I do think that the like young queers who are concerned about the children or whatever, I do feel like that's a minority. I yes, feel like that, I, that I is a like really specific and small group that gets boosted the way these things do by conservatives who like seeing that. Yes. And they don't necessarily realize that they're towing the party line in that way. I do think that mostly that demographic is small enough to be meaningless. Except that it just makes me so mad. Yes, God, it makes me so mad. It's like, it's like watching someone bail onto a sinking boat. Uh huh. And then you go up to them and you're like, why are you doing this? And they're like, um, because I care about the ocean. (laughs) They're just so fucking slappable good good metaphor i like it thank you yeah the children the children are gonna be fine i know they will i i I know that you know i'm saying this for anybody who might have been concerned about the children out there yeah that's fair. the the children are allowed to see like i don't even it's not really clear what it is that people are worried about kids seeing right like the the it's it's just Right. When pressed, they seem to go to like pup play or I've, I've also seen diapers brought up. A lot of straight people are into diapers. I hate to tell you. <laughs> like, I saw worse shit than that by the time I was seven. Yeah. Like whatever. I don't, who cares? Kids, kids are fine with all that shit. Every kid walks in on their parents. Like it's normal. No one learns about sex in some perfect sterile white bubble. That's correct. Anyway. I'm I've I've worn myself out with all this being angry. <laughs> yeah. We're done. We recorded a podcast. We can rest. Yeah, that's a that's that's a wrap on Gretchen and Julia for tonight. <laughs> you can subscribe to us on all the things, leave us a five star review or whatever kind of review you want. I don't care. Leave us a terrible review, probably. Yeah. Tell us what you fucking hate about us. Yeah, if you dare. Yeah. We'll we'll rebrand <laughs> to be about how This has been the Lament Configuration. I'm Julia Graffer. If you leave us a review. <laughs> Good night, Gretchen. <laughs>